Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Good to go. Well, welcome to Vertical Life Church. For those of you that are new, I am Pastor Joey, and give me a second while I adjust my stand here before it falls over, and I injure myself. All right. Uh, want to say welcome, and uh, I'm excited to get into the book of Revelation. Uh, what an awesome journey that we're beginning. We began last week as we are taking a deep dive into this highly controversial, confusing, exciting crazy vision that John has. And, and we're taking a deep dive because we really want to look at what God is speaking through this book. We want to recognize that this just wasn't a, uh, a, a result of John having something bad for dinner the night before, right? This isn't, you know, John going to bed after having some, you know, expired yogurt in the fridge and then having this crazy dream, right? This was a revelation from Jesus Christ as he is giving him this picture of what is to come. And last week we discussed how John is retransmitting, retransmitting to us a direct word from the Lord himself. And if we want to understand more clearly who Jesus is and what he's like, then we need to understand what is written in this book, because this book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not just what is going to happen at the end of the world and not what could be the basis for the next box office thriller at the movies, but this is a picture of what God Almighty, Jesus Christ, is actually like and the things that he has said is about to come and, and what he's revealing to the church. And this book has a blessing attached to it. As we discussed last week, there's a blessing to those who read it those who listen to it, and those who obey it. And so if God is handing out blessings, I say yes, and all God's people said, amen, right? We, we want this blessing. We want what God has for us in discussing and reading this book. And again, one of the more helpful approaches that I've discovered in recent years as I've been fascinated with end-time studies is seeing how the Bible connects together, and more importantly with John, the connections in the book of Revelation to the Old Testament that helps us understand what he's writing about. Just to give you a, a snapshot of how John uses the Old Testament, a quick survey of the book shows that John makes allusions to the Torah, or the first five books in the Old Testament, 82 times. 97 times he makes allusions to the Psalms. 122 times he makes allusions to the prophet Isaiah. 48 times he alludes to Jeremiah, 83 times he alludes to Ezekiel, 74 times he alludes to Daniel, and 73 times he alludes to the other minor prophets. So what does this tell us about John? It tells us he has the Old Testament in his head. So when he's writing, when he's getting this vision, God is connecting to him, he's speaking to him in a way that connects with what he already knows and what he's already thinking. So if we want to understand what it is that he's re uh, relating to, we need to get in his head so we can understand. 
And it's also important to understand John is reading the, the Old Testament. He's relating these things to us through the lens of a post-resurrection mindset. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. If you remember, the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament believers in, in the Jewish nation, they were looking ahead toward Messiah coming. They were looking ahead towards the coming of the son of David, the, the one who would come. John is looking back after Jesus has come and given his life, made the sacrifice, risen from the dead, and he's able to now see how everything Jesus did fulfilled the things that they had been looking forward to for hundreds and hundreds of years. And in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, Jesus, after his resurrection, he appears to a couple of his disciples that are traveling to Emmaus, and he begins talking to them, except he disguises himself so they can't tell who he is. And he is talking to them, and he sees how they're still distraught over his death. They, they have heard of maybe the resurrection, but they're still distraught over all the things that just happened. And he gets a little miffed. Did you know Jesus gets upset too? Like we, we, th we have such a sterilized version of Jesus. Because we think of him as the lamb who was slain, the, the meek and lowly shepherd. But sometimes Jesus gets upset. I love the story where Jesus goes into the temple, makes a whip, and opens a can of you-know-what on some people in the temple. You know, it's, it's an awesome thing to see Jesus get after it. But he gets kind of upset with his disciples a little bit, and here's what he says. He kind of rebukes them. He says, then Jesus said to them, you foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all the, that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Like, duh, you guys have been studying this stuff since you were kids. You, like, you've been taught this. You've gone to Sunday school. You've gone to vacation Bible school. You've, you've gone to uh, church services your whole life, and you're surprised by what happened? Like, I think if Jesus came back today and we stood before him, like, after witnessing some stuff, we'd be like, oh, man, like, and he'd be like, dude, I've been telling you this for 2,000 years, right? Same as with his disciples. He goes on and he said, and then Jesus took them through what? Through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have liked to be there in that moment? where the Lord himself opens the Bible and points out every place, every scripture, every promise in the Old Testament that says, hey, you know what you're reading? Yeah, that's me. That applies here. You remember when I turned water into wine? Yeah, that was fulfilled over here. Like, he took them through the, the gamut of the Old Testament. So as John is writing down this vision, he's pulling from what he already knew and from what Jesus showed them in this moment of how he fulfilled the Old Testament. So we have to have that in our minds as we're reading this book about the imagery and language of the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus in prophecy. Some already fulfilled and some will soon discover will be things yet to come. Now I want to encourage you, this is not kiddie pool Christianity. This is not kiddie pool Christianity. What do I mean by that? Well, this past 4th of July, anybody have a great 4th of July? Some fireworks and stuff. It was a lot of fun. We got invited over to uh, a friend's house to have a cookout, uh, and uh, 
spent some time over there, and they had a pool, and uh, we were over there for like a pool party, but on their deck, they had a kiddie pool for their dog, and we were kind of inspired by that, because here recently, we, we took our family to a little vacation uh, to the beach for a couple days, and we brought Finn, our, our golden doodle, with us, and I don't know what's wrong with him, but he doesn't like the water all that much. He was really apprehensive of going into the, the Lake Michigan and wading in there, and, and I can't get him to get into our pool on his own. And so we were thinking, well, you know, that was kind of a cool idea. Let's get a, maybe a kiddie pool. We'll put it out on our deck, and then he can splash in that while we're out in the backyard. But see, many Christians and believers, the challenge we have in our day is that many Christians aren't hungry for the deeper things of the word. We want to spend time in the kiddie pool, the shallow end. And I don't know why that is. If we just don't have an appetite for it, we just don't think it's interesting enough, or maybe we aren't real sure that we can understand it and that we feel safer in the shallow end. But either way, when you spend time only in the kiddie pool of Christianity, you miss out on the deep treasures in the deep end. You miss and so the reason why we're taking this approach in Revelation is because we don't want to miss the treasures that God has for us in this book. As I said, we took our wife and kids to the beach this last week for a couple of days, and it was a ton of fun. But one of the frustrating things that, that happened even before we got to have any fun was on the road trip there. Now, normally I like to drive in the road trips, but you know when you get to the kind of towards the end of your trip, you just want to get out of the car. Anybody feel like that? Like you just get out of the car? And so what, I, what, what helps keep passing the time for me is I like to watch the GPS because it keeps track of your time and your mileage. And the closer you get, you, you know, the, the less time, it's like a countdown. You're like, okay, it's getting closer. It's getting closer. And then when you get real close, you can see the red dot of glory on the GPS. It's like, okay, it's, your destination's right here, right? And so we were, we were heading there, and I could see the destination. It was right there. But as we're on this business highway heading into town, we get to where we need to make the turn, except I can't make the turn because it's blocked by a median. There, there are two things I don't really care for when I drive. One is roundabouts. Roundabouts are like a life-and-death version of Duck, Duck, Goose. You're trusting that the other cars understand what a yield sign is, and the ones that don't, you might goose them, and it will be a bad day for all, right? So I don't, like, I don't care for roundabouts. And the other thing I don't care for is when you're on a highway, and you want to make a left turn, but there's a median for another mile and a half, and it forces you to have to drive out of your way to make a U-turn and then come back. It's so annoying. Can I get a witness? Amen, right? Yes. It's so annoying. But why do they do that? One, it keeps traffic moving in busy intersections. It eliminates the possibility for accidents, or at least to create fewer accidents. And beloved, this is kind of what I want you to have in your mind as we go through this study. Because sometimes it's going to feel like, and today is one of those moments, where it feels like we're going a long way around. But the reason why we're going a long way around is because we need to take a careful approach of what's being said, make those connections so that when we get to our destination, it makes sense. 
And so it brings all together. And this is kind of the topic we're talking about today as we look at the vision of the lampstand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you left this for us. God, we thank you for the hope that it it fills us with as we look toward our blessed hope the day you return and you set up your kingdom once and for all. God, I ask you right now as we dive into this book, God, you keep our attention. Spirit, your presence would fill this place. You give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind that understands, and a heart ready to believe everything that you have for us, God. And we say yes and amen to everything that you said and spoken. We place our faith in you, Jesus, and we thank you. And all God's people said amen and amen. So we're going to pick up our reading in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. If you have your Bible, you can turn there, or you can navigate in the YouVersion Bible app in the live events page. All of our scripture notes will be there, as well as we'll have some on the screen here for you today. But in Revelation chapter 1, picking up where we were last week, it says in verse 4, This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is who was, and who is still to come. This is where we stopped last week. We didn't get very far in the book of Revelation last week. But we're going to finish the verse. He says, and from the sevenfold spirit, other translations will translate as the seven spirits before his throne. You don't have to go very far before you come across something that makes you want to scratch your head. What in the heck are the seven spirits before God's throne? Right, right. We're familiar with God being a trinity, right? There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We get that there are some angels floating around there. But what are the seven spirits? What is the sevenfold spirit or the seven spirits before the throne? Many scholars point to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 to maybe take a guess at what this could be. In Isaiah 11:2, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, talking about the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So here, Isaiah is writing about this, the seven aspects or seven influences of the Holy Spirit that will rest on the Messiah. And this could be, and what I, I used to hold to this as being maybe an explanation for the seven spirits. But scholars today are pointing to something else alluded to later in the text that I think gives us a little more clarity about what these seven spirits are. In this vision, John again, is recording his encounter with Jesus Christ, and he names the seven churches that he's writing these letters to. He's going to pen these letters to these seven churches from the Lord himself, and he describes Jesus in a way of gives us a visual picture of Christ, which we'll look at next week. But in that description, here's what John continues to write in Revelation 1, 12, and 13. It says, when I turned to see who was speaking with me, I saw seven gold lampstands. Somebody say lampstand. I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. So we have seven spirits before the throne of God. Now we have seven lampstands and Jesus standing in the middle of the lampstands. 
Now, we not only have these seven spirits, but we have these lampstands, or other translations will say candlesticks. In verse 16, he writes this about Christ. He says, and he held seven stars in his right hand. So as we're getting this picture of Christ, again, we have seven spirits before the throne, seven lampstands, and seven stars. Now, if you didn't already know this, numbers are really important in Scripture as they give prophetic or metaphoric meaning. The number seven is the number of completion. It's the most important number in all the Old Testament. Matter of fact, we begin the seven days of creation or the creation week with the number seven. And there are many ways the number seven is used. The number three is also represents completion, but to a lesser degree as the number seven. But the number three, we could look at the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have three individuals to make up one complete whole. And so here we have three groups from the onset that we can see that are referred to as the number seven, seven spirits, seven stars, seven churches, which since that number represents completion, what we can pull out of this is the metaphor that's being used is that John is not referencing these individual groups. Even though he's writing to seven literal churches that existed during the time that he was writing this, the church of Ephesus, Pergamos, Smyrna, Laodicea, Thyatira, he's writing to individual churches the fact that the number seven is used gives us an indication that these letters were not just meant for seven individual churches, but for the whole church. That is a complete message to be given to the entire church. And the seven stars would be not just these seven individual stars, but the whole group of stars. And the seven spirits, the whole group of spirits. So we get this idea that it refers to a com- the completion or the totality of these groups, not just the individuals that are being mentioned here. John will also tell us what the stars and the candlesticks refer to. I think that's pretty nice of John, don't you? It's like, it's nice that you interpret this for us. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, is what he writes. He says, this is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here, at least on the onset, we have an interpretation of what is being pictured here in this vision. We know that the two groups, at least two of these, refer to the seven churches he's writing to, and the angel representative, or the angel assigned to represent each of these churches before the Lord. Now, again, in the ancient mind, stars did, when you read this in the Old Testament, you read about stars, you will see that they do represent the actual stars in the galaxy, the stars in the sky, the sun, moon, and the stars. But often stars refer to angelic beings or spiritual beings. In the Second Temple literature, the, uh, outside of Scripture, more notably in the book of Enoch, we see the uh, stars or angels being depicted as giant burning mountains being cast to the sea. So this is pictured or metaphoric language using stars to represent angelic beings. And so if you look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, we begin to see a connection to these stars with the other group we began to 
discuss at the beginning the sevenfold spirit or the seven spirits before the throne of God. In Revelation 3.1, it says, write this letter to the angel of the church of Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God or the seven spirits and the seven stars. So we have this connection between now the seven spirits and the seven stars being united into Christ. According to Dr. Michael Heiser, this connection of both groups with Jesus, the seven spirits and the seven stars, leads us to believe that the seven spirits and the seven angels are actually one in the same group. So linguistically, they point to being one of the same, since Jesus is said to have them both. And by nature of Jesus, both being in possession of the angels and the sevenfold spirit, they are connected to the churches because the seven spirits or seven stars are assigned to or appointed to the seven churches of Revelation. So just to make sure you're following me and checking in and tracking, we have seven spirits and seven stars who are most likely one in the same group. They're assigned to the seven churches of Revelation, and they are representative of not just seven angels and seven stars, but all of the angels and all of the church, because it's a complete whole. Does it make sense? You tracking with me? All right. Because we're, we're getting in. We're, we're diving in. We've got to take the floaties off. We've got to go down into the deep end, right? So there's something else here that if we discover, if we dig a little deeper, there is a principle in biblical studies called the principle of first use, which means anytime you see something repeated in Scripture, you go back to the original or the first use of that in the Bible to get the context of what is being then elaborated on or communicated in through the rest of the scripture. And the lampstand imagery isn't first used in John. Matter of fact, the first time we see a lampstand is in the book of Exodus when Moses is commanded by God to build a tabernacle and he puts three basic things inside the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, and the lampstand. And this lampstand is highly significant as it brings light into the tabernacle. But someone else uses the lampstand as a metaphor. The prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 4, he receives a visitation from an angel of the Lord, and he has a vision of the lampstand, and this will help bring into clarity more so who these angels are, who these spirits are, and what they do. In Zechariah 4, beginning in verse 1, in this vision Zechariah has, it says, The angel who'd been talking with me returned and woke me as though I had been asleep. What do you see now, he asked, and I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand which a, with a bowl of oil on top of it. Around the bowl are seven lamps, each having seven sprouts with wicks. As you can see, the number seven is, is used over and again. So Zechariah has this vision of a lampstand with seven candlesticks on it, just like John's vision. And so when we think of John's vision in the book of Revelation, we need to think of the lampstand that is being pictured here in Zechariah. It's a candelabra, the same that would be found in the temple, or a menorah. And I have a picture of that to be on the screen here for you. As you get this picture of a solid gold lampstand with seven candlesticks on it, and on top of that would be the, the bowls for oil and fire. 
This is where Zechariah got it from Exodus, the golden lampstand in the temple, and John is carrying this on in the book of Revelation. So Zechariah has this vision. The angel of the Lord is there. He's giving them this picture of the lampstand, and then he's beginning to describe what this lampstand means in the angelic beings that attended to the Lord. So in Zechariah's vision, in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, the angel of the Lord tells him what the, the, the flames, what the lights are, what the lampstand represents. And here's what he says. He says, these seven are the eyes of the Lord. Somebody say eyes of the Lord. So the seven candlesticks represent the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Now, don't take this literally. This is a vision. This is a dream. Zechariah is not saying that God literally has seven eyes, and they float around the earth all over everywhere, going to and fro, up and down in the earth. That would be kind of freaky, wouldn't it? You're like, what's that in the sky? Is that a UFO? No, that's just one of God's eyeballs bouncing around in the sky. Like, that would be freaky, right? So that's not what he's saying. But this is the description we're, we're getting here. What is being represented is God's omniscience. God is beyond our comprehension. God knows everything. He declared the end from the beginning. He knows what we think before we think it. He knows what we're going to pray before we pray it. He knows infinitely beyond what we could ask or think. He, he's so far beyond, and God knows. And here it's describing the eyes of the Lord going to and fro throughout the earth. But it also represents something else. It represents the angelic entities that are tasked with feeding God information about what's happening in the affairs of men. We see this in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. He says, in verse 1 he says, or verse 8, he says, I saw in the night, somebody say in the night. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And then I said, what are these, my lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth. Somebody say patrolled the earth. They have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. So the lampstand, the seven lamps on the lampstand, they represent the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord represent angelic beings, angelic beings who are tasked with patrolling the earth. So evidently, God has tasked a subset of his angelic hosts with being his eyes and ears in the earth. Their job is to patrol the earth and report back to the Lord what they see to report on to mankind. And they give him this report. This should make us think of Job chapter 1, the story of Job. In Job chapter 1, there's another angel that's highly controversial. But in Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, this term represents angelic beings, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From 
Where have you come? And Satan answered to the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down in it. From patrolling the earth. This is what was happening. Now, according to Dr. Michael Heiser in the book of Demons and the Unseen Realm, here this is actually not a proper name. So we read this as capital S, Satan, but in the original Hebrew, it's not a proper name. It's the Satan. It's a title, which means the accuser. That's what it means. And so he is an adversary, and what is he doing? He's coming to present himself before the Lord and report on what he's seen based upon the patrol he has been doing over the earth, just like what we see the eyes of the Lord doing. Just like the eyes of the Lord do. And it's evident that this being was well informed because God then asked him, have you considered my servant Job as if he was to know who he was? He was well acquainted with the people of the earth. So Job, by, assume, by calling Job by name, God is assuming that the Satan or the accuser would know who he was. So the job of the eyes of the Lord, again, are to investigate people. As Zechariah showed us in Zechariah chapter 1, they would go at night time to spy out the activities of men. What happens at night? Wickedness. No good. Corruption. Happens in the night season. In the cover of dark. So the eyes of the Lord, part of what they do is they patrol the earth. They go out at night to bring light into darkness. To shine light. What happens when you turn light on in a dark room? Darkness goes away. So it, it vanishes. So they bring light into that area. They expose what is happening at night. And what do they do when they come back and report? They report, they accuse, they stand as an adversary adversary to the wicked people in the earth before God, like prosecuting attorneys in heaven. So according to Dr. Heiser, the individual in Job isn't necessarily the big S Satan that we fear as the enemy. He could just be one of the eyes of the Lord doing his job and God asking him, did you consider my servant when you were doing your patrol? So the eyes of the Lord investigate. As candlesticks, they take the light of God and shine in the places of darkness. Not only do they report, but it also seems that they have a measure of authority. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, it says, A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. This is Daniel's vision of heaven as the courts of heaven are in session. He sees the ancient of days, God on the throne, and the courts of the heavenlies, the angelic hosts, along with him to judge. And the books were open. What are the books? They're the logs. They're the record of what the eyes of the Lord discern when they patrol the earth. So the angels of glory are out patrolling, discerning, making record. They're bringing that record before the Lord. And when God sits in judgment, the books are opened and they judge mankind out of the books. They judge along with the Lord as the court sits in judgment. We can also see in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, there's another term for these angels 
It says, this sentence is by the decree of the watchers. Somebody say the watchers. So here we have this moment where God's getting ready to pronounce judgment on King Nebuchadnezzar for being prideful. He's going to make him go insane for seven years. He's going to act and live like a cow. He's going to eat grass in the field. It's pretty crazy. But the decree doesn't actually come down from God himself. It says it's by the decree of the watchers. This decision is by the word of the holy ones. It's another term for the angelic realm, the angelic beings. To the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will set over its lowliest of men. The decree is by the angels, the watchers, the eyes of the Lord. God has given them a measure of authority to do his will in the earth. Why? So that the living may know the most high rules. So not only do they report, they have authority to bring judgment. But we don't only see in Scripture that they, they pronounce judgment or it's a negative thing. We also see something very positive. In Genesis chapter 6, this is the time Noah is chosen by God to help save mankind. In Noah chapter 6, verse 8, it says, Noah found favor in what? The eyes of the Lord. Now, this could mean that God knew Noah was a righteous man, and so God just chose Noah. But by using the phrase, eyes of the Lord, we're signifying something deeper, that God's angelic host patrolling the earth before the flood discovered Noah was a righteous and upright man, gave that report back to God, and thus Noah was chosen to be the savior of mankind. So they don't just do what's negative, they also promote the positive. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts are blameless toward him. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So the eyes of the Lord, these angelic partners in the divine counsel of God, are there to not just bring judgment, but also support those who are righteous. Now the question I have is, does God need these angels? No, he doesn't. He doesn't need angelic messengers. He doesn't need any of this. He's self-sufficient. He's all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. But he delights to work with his creation. And these angels are referred to by another title called the sons of God. They are God's family in heaven. They are his heavenly or spiritual family. They're his angelic partners. They do his will, and God delights in his creation doing his will. So these angels stand against the enemies of God, but they minister to those who belong to him. And this is why John connects the seven angels who act as God's eyes and ears in the spiritual world to those with oversight over God's people in the book of Revelation because they play a role with how God looks after his church, his people. Hebrews 1.14 says, Therefore angels are only servants, spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. God's angels are in attendance to his people. It's an amazing thing. So Zechariah is connecting the angels of God, the eyes and ears of God, the ones who bring light into the darkness to the spiritual realm, 
So what is John alluding to? Referring to the church as being the lampstand of the Lord, just as the eyes of the Lord are the lampstand before his throne. He's referring to us as the church of being God's eyes and ears on the earth. Just as the sons of God, the angelic host, these eyes of the Lord, are God's eyes and ears in the spiritual realm, the church of Jesus Christ, the whole church, are his eyes and ears on the earth. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to God, your Father. Why, why do the eyes of the Lord spy out? And so why did they make the decree against Nebuchadnezzar? So that all the world will know that it's the Most High that rules the affairs of men. So let your light so shine, be light in the world. Matthew 5, 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Somebody say the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Your job, your, your position is to take light from the throne of God into the world to light up the darkness. You're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. So as the angels of God are his light in the spiritual world, we are to be his light in the physical world, just as the angels, the eyes of the Lord, are to patrol the earth, to go to and fro and up and down into the earth. The church of Jesus Christ is also to make the same move. Mark 16, 15, Jesus said, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. We've been given the same mandate to cover the earth. And what do we see in the world today? We see the church of Jesus Christ in every corner of the earth, in every continent, in every nation, in every place that there is life and breath. The church exists in some fashion or another to bring light into the darkness. Where to go in all the world? By using the number seven, this number of completion, what we have depicted here in the opening sequence of Revelation is the perfection of God's divine counsel, the perfection of his heavenly court, of his spiritual family on the earth with his sons of God in heaven and his sons of God on the earth together. And what is the uniting force that brings them together? It is Jesus Christ our Lord, the one in the midst of the candlesticks, the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars in his hand. And beloved, this is the picture, the fulfillment of the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6.10 that says, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm getting chills. I don't know about you. This stuff geeks me up. Like, I love it. We are privileged to partner with divine supernatural beings to bring about the will of God on this earth. Let that sink in, let it blow your mind. We have not just been given this privilege, 
we have also, as the church, been given a measure of authority. Matthew 18, 18, Jesus says, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Just as the angels of glory, the eyes of the Lord, are given authority in the heavenlies, we've been given authority on the earth. And as we walk in our identity as sons and daughters to the King of Kings, united to Jesus, Lord and Savior, doing so will bring his light into the world. His will will be released in heaven and on earth. Why do you think that Jesus said that his house should be known as a house of prayer? Like we, we memorize these things, we, we, we quote them when we're talking about the, we're going to have a prayer meeting tonight at 6 o'clock at Pastor Joey's house, because our house, his house should be known as a house of prayer. And we say these things, but what does that mean, y'all? What does it mean to us in this moment, in this day and age? Why did Paul say, pray without ceasing? Because our role as believers in Jesus Christ is not simply to try to live a moral life as we wait on Jesus to return. Our role and our position is members of God's divine counsel where we should be living in intercession for a lost and dying world. John makes a statement that harkens back to Mount Sinai. It comes right out of the book of Exodus in Revelation chapter 1 verse 6. And this is the point. This is why we take the long way around the Old Testament to come back to the New Testament right here in Revelation 1.6. Because the Lord has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He has made us a kingdom of priests. As part of God's divine counsel, we're also priests of God. Priests live to make intercession for the people they serve. They act as the touch point for people far from God to encounter God. Prayer is important because as God's divine counsel, we inform God of what we see in this world, what we believe his attention should be on, what we want his angels dispatched to handle and to take care of. We are the intercessors that present our case before the Lord. We give the angels of glory their assignments as we lift up our prayers to heaven so his will can be done in the earth. Such an awesome thing. There are two things I take away from what John is revealing to us here in this vision. The first is there is a great honor of belonging to Jesus Christ. Such a great honor. We get to be a part of of his family, a part of his divine counsel. And why do we get to do that? Why does God use us? Because God loves to partner with his kids. You know, when you've got kids and you're trying to teach them something new, like doing the dishes or, or cook a meal. The other day, my, my wife was, you know, trying to get our kids to help cook a meal, and they all kind of just like blew her off. But you know, mama always gets her way. And so it came back around, and, and they helped her cook a meal. And it's like, why do we got to do this? Why do we got to do this? And, and our thought is, well, we want you to be a successful human being when you leave the house. So you need to know how to do some stuff, right? But more so is we just delight in doing things with our kids. Could we have cooked the meal all by ourselves? Absolutely. And it probably would have been better. It was good, but it probably would have been better. But there's a delight when you're partnering with your children. 
in accomplishing the things that you have before you. And our Heavenly Father is such a good God that He wants you involved in His work, in His mission, in His ministry. We are the dwelling place of God. We are His temple. If you think about what that means, the place, the temple of God was the place where His glory dwelt. And what did you see inside the temple? You saw the candlesticks, the showbread, the Ark of the Covenant, and ornate all throughout the temple were angels of glory. We get to be a part of what God is doing in the mystery of his glory. The angels are attending to the Lord, but since God dwells in us, guess where angels are attending? In us. The angels of God attend his people. We carry God's presence wherever we go. And this understanding, this vision of Jesus in the churches, it sets the tone for what's to come in these letters. Everything Jesus is about to say to these churches, and consequently the whole church for this whole age of grace, in each letter Jesus addresses something they're doing well, but he also brings them a correction and a rebuke because he is calling them back to the position they hold as divine council members or part of his heavenly family. So he brings a rebuke to these churches to get them back in line with what he's called them to be. And many scholars seem to believe that the churches of Revelation represent time periods over church history. And I used to hold that view. But what I believe, if we look at the context of what John is showing us, that these churches represent the whole church for the entire church age, that what we're actually reading in these letters are letters to individual types of Christians and types of churches that have existed for all time. And there's a message that's being released here about what we need to be considering, what we need to be doing, because we're part of something bigger than what we experience on our everyday lives. There's a bigger story happening. And if we take it for granted, we might be walking under some assumptions that don't turn out to be true. So it's a great honor. But number two... It's a great responsibility for belonging to Christ. In his letters, we see that confession that Christ is Lord is not enough to make you a genuine child of Jesus Christ or a genuine child of God. There must be fruit. There must be fruit, and not just any kind of fruit, the right kind of fruit. Only good fruit comes from being connected to the right tree. And this isn't anything new. Jesus told us in John 15, beginning of verse 1, he says, I'm the true vine, and my Father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
By this my Father will be glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. There is a way to prove you are a disciple. It's not in what you say, it's the fruit you produce. And this is what Jesus was telling the church before he died, before he ascended. And this is the same message we're getting. And why does it matter? Because as followers of Christ, we're not just good moral people. We are called and commissioned to a high place, a high purpose. And we are to carry out that purpose until kingdom comes. Jesus is saying if you don't abide in him, you don't bear the right kind of fruit and can be cut off. A branch can be cut off from the vine, cut off from the lampstand. If you think about it this way, the menorah, the golden lampstand, historically has been thought to represent the tree of life from the Garden of Eden. To be cut off from the tree of life means to be cut off from the life of Christ. Jesus is the true vine, the stump of Jesse, the root of David. He is the source that our lives flow from. He is the vine. If we're not connected to the root system, to the vine, we won't produce good fruit. And this is the same message that he sends to the first church of Asia, to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And he uses the lampstand imagery. If you remember what the lampstand represents in Revelation chapter 2, in verse 4, he says, again, he commends them from what they're doing well. But then he brings a correction, and here's what he tells him. He says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. John is building on this idea of the importance of knowing who you are, what you're called into, what you're a part of. There's something bigger The light you have doesn't come from your works. It comes from the oil of the Holy Spirit that is poured out. In Zechariah's vision, it shows the golden oil is poured out from the throne of God. It's poured out to light the lamp. The oil of the Lord is the Holy Spirit. It's the fuel for the light. The light you bear, the privilege you have, comes from being connected to Christ. Without being connected to Christ, you can't flow in the Holy Spirit. As you're connected to Christ, his life will shine through you. You will bear fruit, and Jesus will be glorified. Does this mean you're going to be perfect? No. You're not going to be perfect until Jesus returns and gives you the glorified body. But there will be the fruit of life that emanates from your life. You know, I hear this all the time. People talk about taking the Lord's name in vain. And we think that just means saying, you know, GD or OMG or any different ways we misuse the name of the Lord. Do you know the church is referred to as the bride of Christ? Have you heard that? You're familiar with that? We're the bride of Christ. What does a bride do on the day of her wedding? She takes the name of the groom. When you commit your life to Christ, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you become part of his bride, which does what? It takes on the name of the groom. You take the name of the Lord. If a bride takes the name of her husband, but then lives a life of adultery, then that name has been taken in vain. 
If we take on the name of the Lord, but we live in such a way that's unfaithful to the Lord, in a way that is not pursuing God as our first love, as God as our greatest pursuit, if we're not living for Christ, but we're living for ourselves, seeking to find pleasure in the world rather than finding purpose in the kingdom of God, when we live for the world rather than his kingdom, his name upon you is placed in vain. Because it doesn't matter much to your life. You've taken his name in vain like a bride takes her husband's name. But when we don't live for the kingdom, when we don't live for the king, when we don't walk in our purpose, when we pursue the world, we are taking his name in vain. And this is why this matters. Don't take the significance of what we're called to, what we're doing today, right here, right now, for granted. Because just as the eyes of the Lord, just as the sons of God on a specific day are chosen to present themselves before the Lord, they present themselves to give a report of what they've seen and heard. When we gather for worship as the church of Jesus Christ, we are really gathering to do the same thing. We're gathering to present ourselves before the Lord. What's it say? It says, when two or more are gathered in your name, where am I? I'm in the midst of you. I'm the one in the midst of the candlesticks. I'm there among you. We come to present ourselves before the Lord. We're here to celebrate what God's done, but also to report to him what we've seen in the world what we're experiencing in our everyday lives, what his attention needs to be focused on, where his eyes need to go, what needs intervention, and then receive our instructions for ministry and to do his will as we go about our daily lives. Beloved, coming to church is more than a religious exercise. It's a divine privilege. But there are many who don't see it that way. They've they haven't caught the revelation of who they are and what they're called into. They've brought on a religion that makes them feel guilty and ashamed when they don't measure up. And over time, they just burn up and burn out. They lose interest and they fall away. It's not about religion. It's about who your heart is connected to. It's about being connected to Jesus. If your heart doesn't belong to him, if you're just phoning this thing in, if you say you belong, but you don't really belong, your life is going to show it. And this is what was going on in the church of Ephesus. They were fighting all the culture wars they could fight. They were standing against everything they saw was wrong, but they were using the authority they had to condemn, to come against. They acted more like adversaries than priests. And Jesus told them, if you keep going like this, if you're constantly against, if you're constantly condemning, you're constantly standing against, I'm going to remove your branch. I'm going to take your light. I'll remove you from the share in this divine privilege. Reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If you have all the greatest religious experiences, all the most amazing gifts, but you don't have this one thing, you don't have love, it's pointless. It's meaningless. Love keeps us pursuing God's heart, right? Love is what sent Jesus to earth. It's what put Jesus on the cross. Love is what kept Jesus on the cross. Love is what raised him from the dead. Love is what motivates us to pursue him, what keeps us faithful to him when it's hard. Love is what fulfills the law and every expectation of God. Love is what God desires most because God is love. 
Love is what promotes us to gather together. It's what pushes us to tell others about Jesus. It leads us to lay hands on the sick, seek the gifts, encourage and build each other up. Love uh, encourages us to prophesy his promises and call each other into our divine destiny. Love is what makes us care for what's wrong in the world and helps us live non-self-centered lives, but lives for his honor and glory. What John gives us in this moment is a picture of the perfection of God's people, his angelic hosts and his earthly hosts, the people of God and the church, both heaven and earth, filled with love, shining bright, just as Jesus shines. Beloved, in Matthew 24, Jesus said, in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. And this is what was taking root in the church of Ephesus why they were in danger of their life, their light being cut off and being burned out. Last week, we saw that John was signaling for a war. There's a war coming, and a war where we're going to have to choose a side. In 1 John 2, 16, it says, all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, they're not from the Father, but they're from the world. There is a choice that we have to make who we're going to serve who we're going to pursue, who is going to get our hearts, the world or the king of kings. And as love diminishes, so will your love for one another. Religion will get old. We'll lose sight of who we are, what our privilege is. And the tendency will be to begin living for ourselves and become utterly consumed and overwhelmed with the temptations of this world. I think many people, many churches today have a great opportunity to join Jesus in an incredible relationship, in the position of his divine counsel, but they miss it because their focus is on something other than a passionate pursuit for the Lord and love for one another. It's on works, rules, on who they can point fingers at. But to find happiness in the world, we have such a short window in this age of grace to get connected to the source of true happiness, true joy. And that's in Jesus Christ. To be in the world, but not of the world. And to walk in a purpose that truly fulfills, truly satisfies, for his plans are good and not for disaster. To give us future and a hope. And I'm so thankful that John gave us this vision. I'm so thankful that Jesus gave us this vision because it reminds us of how important what we do is. And what we do when we gather together. How important worship is. And what it accomplishes. How important praying together is. And what it releases in the world. How important the gifts of the Spirit are. And what they do when we step out and use them as we build up the body of Christ. They encourage divine transformation in the world. As we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we come to a close, I just want to leave you with this thought. Divine counselman. Beloved sons of the king and daughters of the king. The overturning of Roe versus Wade was not an overnight decision. It was the result of millions of divine council meetings where God's people lifted up this need before God. And finally, we're in a place where the fight for life is gaining traction and moving forward. 
Imagine if the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, would gather together and take their role and their calling in the divine counsel of God seriously, and that his house became a house of prayer. Imagine what would be accomplished in the world if we began shining light in the darkness. Not standing up for what's wrong because we want to be loud and boisterous and we want to make a drama on the internet or wherever we can find it, but because we're going to take the gospel of Jesus, the love of Christ, and the truth that sets people free into the darkness. We're going to expose what's wrong, but we're going to lead them to what can transform their lives. And we're going to pray together that God's angelic hosts pave the way as we move forward to accomplish his purposes. Imagine what would happen when darkness is bound and light is loosed. And the question I have for you is, do you want that? Do you want it? Do you want to be a part of what God is doing? Do you want to partner with angels to supply miracles Do you want to be a part of a greater story and a greater revelation? As God brings the totality of human history to a close, the greater revelation we have of Christ, and this is why we are going through this book, the greater revelation we have of Christ, the more of love His will experience. And the more love of His we experience, the more of His life and His love can overflow in our lives that we'll have to give away. So let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes as we come to a time of response. And the question I have for you just to consider is, has your light dimmed or all but gone out? Is your heart truly connected and passionate for Jesus? Are you living as a kingdom priest? Are you interceding? with your brothers and sisters in Christ as intercessors for the world, not just your everyday personal life, but for the lives of those around you, your community, your state, your nation, the world. What are you living for? What are you pursuing? And beloved, do you know who you are? If you're in Christ Jesus, you're a child of God, do you know who you are and the divine privilege you occupy? And do you know who is in our midst? Even now. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this vision. We thank you for this revelation. The understanding, God, that when we're connected to you, we're not just saved from our sins, but we're called to a higher purpose. We're called to a, a greater story. And God, I just ask your forgiveness for my own life. When I've gotten stale, when I've gotten tired, when I've, when I've chosen self over kingdom priorities, God, and I just pray that revival would sweep through your church, just as you called Ephesus to return to its first love, God, that you would turn us to our first love, that we would have a brand new, fresh revelation of your love for us, Jesus. The word says that we love because you first love us, God, so I pray that a revelation of your love would fill this temple in Jesus' name. You turn our eyes again to the Lord our God. You turn our eyes to the kingdom. You turn our eyes to the harvest, God. You get us off of our couches and into the streets. 
And I pray, God, that when you stand on the Mount of Olives and you begin to usher in your kingdom, when we're gathered together on that glorious day, God, that we would be found faithful, shining bright, and that we would hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. May we be found faithful. And God, I pray for all here. Holy Spirit, we thank you for moving, for speaking. As the prayer team comes forward and Tony's about to lead us into a song of worship and response. Holy Spirit, I just ask you to draw every heart, every person that needs a jump start, that needs a redo, that needs to be rekindled in the relationship with God, that needs to be reconnected to the vine. They might be hanging on by a thread, but God, they need to be reconnected. I pray, God, that they would respond, that they would come forward. They'd see that the day is at hand, the time is near, the time to re-engage is now. The time for games is over. The time of taking your name in vain is over. It's time to rise up as children of the King, to be diligent in our pursuit of your calling, to step out in faith, to be light. God, I pray that you would send a fresh wave of the Spirit, that you would revive us afresh, God, that it would blow in this place and it would carry on to Wednesday night as we go into the city and we, we release the love of Christ and the hope of Christ in the city. And I just pray, God, for everyone that comes forward. And I pray for those who have physical needs and emotional needs and spiritual needs, Lord, as they come for prayer. God, that we lay these issues before you. And we trust in your word that says when we come boldly before the throne of grace, we will find mercy in the time of need. God, we thank you for moving. We thank you for speaking. And we thank you for your unfailing, never-ending love. Fill us afresh in Jesus' name. Let's all stand to our feet as we go into a time of prayer and response. If the Lord has been speaking to your heart and you want to come forward, now's the time. Now's the time. If you need to renew your heart before the Lord, you need to renew your relationship with God, you've, you've kind of gotten stale, you've kind of gotten maybe cold, now's the time. Let him have your heart. Refresh, reconnect as we respond. Let's all stand. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.